0: The Real Investment Show. A couple of things uh, this week coming up, very important. Lots of Federal Reserve speakers out this week going to be talking about the taper coming up. Um, The Fed's talking about having to, you know, starting their taper in November. We're going to hear lots of comments out this week from Fed members kind of reinforcing that idea, talking about, hey, we're going to start taking, you know, slowing down the rate of purchases. Now, that doesn't mean they're taking away the punch bowl just yet, right? So, the punch bowl is there. They're just not refilling it as fast as they were. So as, you know, the, the market's draining that liquidity that's being put into the markets, well, they're going to just slow down that rate of replenishment, so to speak. So instead of doing $120 billion a month, probably going to be just doing something like $105 billion a month. And then they'll continue to slow that down as they get ultimately to not any type of increases. And what they'll be doing at that point is just simply, replacing the bonds that mature now this is what we get back to this kind of this flatline balance sheet that we saw for the fed for a couple of years back in 2015 2016 and led to a little bit more market volatility during that period of time uh, simply because you didn't have liquidity coming in Uh, the other side of this also is that money supply growth is slowing so now when money supply growth slows now and specifically we're talking about the m2 money supply here when that money, that money supply growth slows, that also impacts markets. You tend to have softer periods in stock prices when you have money supply growth slowing. So this really kind of comes back to the, the government right now. Of course, Congress is going to try, and Nancy Pelosi talking about this over the weekend, going to try to push all these spending bills. They've got three things they've got to accomplish fairly quickly uh in order to kind of keep things from the you know the wheels from coming off the cart so to speak they've got to pass the debt ceiling and get that raised so that's going to have to be a continuing resolution to fund the government now there's some misnomers that are coming out right now of course in the media talking about oh my gosh if we don't pass the continuing resolution we're going to default on our debt no we're not just relax <laughs> um a, first of all, we've only had this debt ceiling issue about 25 times now since uh, 1970. And, and again, it's not that big of a deal. Second thing is, is A, the government has defaulted on its debt before. And actually going back to 1871, there's several periods in time where we technically, technically defaulted on our debt. And all that meant was that we delayed interest payments for a couple of months until we got things straightened out and then we made payments. That's all that means. So again, a technical default and a real default are very different things. A real default is grand. That is where you simply don't have the money and you're not going to get the money to pay the payments. And you're in default and you're not gonna be able to pay off your debt. That's what a real default is. Nobody's worried about that anywhere in the world. Yes, we may have a technical default where we can't make the interest payment when it's immediately due, but once we get the continuing resolution passed, then those interest payments are made it's all fine. So let's all just put our big our big boy pants back on and stop, you know, panicking here. So the, lastly, of course, they've got to pass these infrastructure bills, and of course, this three and a half trillion dollar, uh, you know, human infrastructure bill, the social infrastructure bill, which is interesting because you've got, you know, even members of uh, of the Democrat Party at this point are a little bit uncomfortable passing. trillion worth of spending. At this point, just pick one of the two bills and pass it and be done with it and and move on. Uh, But again, this is really getting to the point where they've locked themselves into a box where now they've got to pass both bills rather than just choosing to pass one now and then try to pass one later. They've really locked themselves into a limitation of options. This is going to make it a little bit more difficult uh, trying to get these bills passed. And Nancy Pelosi on some of the talk shows over this weekend opening the door to the fact that the $3.5 trillion spending bill may not be $3.5 trillion after all. So we're likely going to see that start to pull back here a bit um, as those negotiations go through this week. But again, this without raising the debt ceiling, without this passage of the continuing resolution, that's going to make it very difficult to, to do these other bills. And as we talked about in our newsletter week before last, The Democrats have locked themselves into this position to where they have to do all this together because they want to use reconciliation, which will only require them to have 51 votes to pass this $3.5 trillion spending bill. Um, So they've got themselves in a position they have to do this, and that's going to be kind of a big push this week. So markets will be watching that. And again, what markets need is an increase in the money supply. So again, now that all those previous spending bills have now run through, that money supply growth is slowing here, stimulus has been running out, et cetera. Households are running out of cash. That's why we're seeing some softness in the economic numbers as well. So again, need to get these bills passed in order to kind of replenish the punch bowl, so to speak, on money supply, and that'll that will eventually find its way back into market. So again, this is what's gonna be required. Um, over the course of the next several months to kind of keep markets going something to think about all right, quick break, come back, lots of stuff to get into this morning, and uh, we'll get you uh, caught up on all the top headlines for the markets, your money, and more right here on the real investment show. Don't go away you know, so as we you know, as I was talking about a second ago, the markets now have kind of recovered their kind of ground here a little bit, regained their footing. And again, this is not surprising at all. Look, there's still a lot of liquidity coming in the markets and $120 billion a month, still a lot of capital. Money's got to go somewhere. And so one of the things that we're going to be looking for this week is, again, there's just a tremendous amount of Fed speakers. So all these speakers this week are going to be reinforcing this idea of tapering starting in November. So they'll announce it in November, start it in December, maybe January. But, you know, they'll, they'll announce it in November and start kind of laying out this schedule. And the goal is to reduce the bond buying to basically zero sometime mid-2022. The goal is, is to keep the markets okay with this even though they are taking away liquidity. They don't want you to think they're taking away liquidity. Oh, we're not really taking away the punch bowl. In fact, there were some articles out over the weekend, you know, immediately. Kind of the mainstream financial media. Oh, this isn't really taper and it's different this time. And look, they've said that every single time we've had taper of any sort. And it doesn't work out well for stocks. Ultimately, volatility picks up. You have bigger corrections in markets because there's less liquidity to support it etc. But every time is different this time. It's always different this time because of ABC. This time it's different because the Fed's announcing it differently or whatever. Okay, it probably won't be different. Simple fact of the matter is you are taking away liquidity from the markets. That is going to increase volatility. Does that mean the markets have to crash? No, it doesn't. But You've been a very, very long time now without a 10 to a 15 to a 20% correction. You're going to get one at some point this year, next year, year after, whenever. So it's always important to keep that in the back of your mind. It's always about risk management at the end of the day. But the goal will be for these Fed speakers over the next few days to simply just keep the markets very calm. What they don't want is a lack of stability. And we've written about this before is that stability and this is the biggest problem for the Fed, is that the Fed can create market stability by providing a lot of liquidity. The problem is is that stability leads to instability. So as long as you are providing support, you have a stable market. When you don't provide support, you don't. And this is a lot like life support, right? Patients on life support, they're doing fine, right? Well, they're on life support, so they're not doing fine, but you get the point. You know, like everything's functioning. If you turn the life support off, bad things tend to happen. And that's the way it is really for the markets. The markets are now so dependent upon life support that you can't turn it off without having negative outcomes. Now, Does that mean that the market's going to have a 50% correction? No, but you're going to have an increase of volatility because you're removing one of the very supports that creates stability in prices. And when you have a long period of low volatility, and like we've had this year, the, the worst drawdown we've had this year, peak to trough, is 5%, what we just had, right? That's a very mild drawdown for any given year. Normally you have a 10% correction, very common throughout history. So a 5% correction, we've had it. That's good. It's behind us now a little bit. But it's been a period of very low volatility for the markets. Even the decline, to get a 5% correction completed, it took almost three weeks. It was a very mild pickup in volatility to reduce the markets by 5%. Eventually, what will happen is that you're going to get a break in the market that leads to a very rapid decline. And that 5% will happen in a day or two. And when that occurs, that starts other problems happening in the markets, and that increases volatility. So when you break these periods of low, low volatility, and again, if you go back in history and look, volatility tends to run in waves it's like cycles and you get a, a period of low volatility then you get a period of very high volatility and those periods of high volatility are not long in, in in their span you may get two or three years of low volatility and then one year of very high volatility then back to a period of low volatility but those periods of high volatility is what makes it difficult on investors and, again, this is something that we that I'm, I'm, I'm actually writing an article on this, and we'll have this out in a, a week or so, talking about absolute versus relative returns. And one of the things that is talked about a lot in the markets right, is it's just buy and hold and dollar cost average, and you'll be fine over time. That's relative returns. You're going to get the return relative to the market by doing that. Absolute returns are a different story. Absolute returns are creating returns in any given year, whether it's up or down. And primarily the focus is is to avoid drawdowns as much as possible, to allow your gain years to actually compound. And this is one of the biggest kind of fallacies of the markets is, you know, You'll hear this thrown around quite a bit by the financial media. Is like the, the, the most powerful force in the universe is the power of compounding. Albert Einstein once said the power of compounding. Yeah, You hear this a lot. And they refer this back to stocks. And then they tell you, well, the stock market's compounded by 6% a year since whenever. That's not true. It's absolutely not true. And the reason is is that in a year where you lose money, you destroy the entire effective compound rate return of a, of a period. And I've actually got an article out this morning. It's on the website talking about Dow 40,000. It's a huge disappointment. Lots of people talking about Dow 40,000. Oh, we're going to get to Dow 40,000. Yeah, prob- we, we will definitely get to Dow 40,000. Unfortunately... If the Dow had compounded at 5% since 1900, which is, you know, what we're often told is the Dow, you know, the Dow has compounded 6% annually since 1900. Okay, let's just say 5%. Let's just give a little margin of error here, right? So 5%. If the Dow had compounded at 5% since 1900, it would be Dow 650,000, not Dow 40,000. I mean, you know, that's the problem when you start destroying the effective compound rate of return over time. And losses do that. Instead of everybody being fabulously wealthy at Dow 650,000, we're just stuck here at crappy old 40,000. Right? <laughs> so, But this is a thing that we, we lose when we listen to the financial media because they're just simply talking about, oh, just stick your money in. It compounds at 6%. That's true as long as markets are going up. But one year of losses will cut. A very big chunk out of your compound rate of return over time. And we do the math for you in the article that's out today. It's on the website, you know, showing if you have 10% return for three years in a row, right? Your average rate of return is is 10%. Right? 10%, 10%, 10%, 10%, average it, 10%. The next year you lose 10% for year four. If you lose 10% in year four, you turn your average compounded rate of return. Into 5%. In other words, you reduce your compounded rate of return by 50% by having just one year of a 10% loss out of four. And that's the important thing to remember. Come back after the break. It's on the website now, the article talking about Dow 40,000 major disappointments. On the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll come back right after the break, continue our conversation to go away. You know, one of the biggest problems that we have in the country right now, period, end of story, is financial education. What's the number, what, what are the two biggest reasons for divorce in the country, right? Infidelity and financials. Those really the two, those top two reasons. And there's a lot of, of things that occur. That link those two actually together. I mean, when you when you don't have money to spend and things are tough at home and everybody's angry with each other, you know, over finances and nobody's talking, infidelity happens, right? But we don't teach people how to manage money in school. We don't do it in college, really, to any great degree. Um, you know, it's these schools now have. You know these investing classes? They'll they'll teach kids for one semester, and they'll say, like, "Okay, let's go buy a, you know some stocks, and we'll see how you do by the end of the quarter." And all that does that doesn't teach kids actually how to invest; it teaches them how to gamble. Because the way to win that competition, you know, stock stock investing competitions are the worst thing ever. And if you're and if your children are ever getting involved in it, get them out of it somehow. Claim sick all semester. <laughs> it's the worst thing you can teach them. Because it doesn't teach them to invest. It teaches them how to gamble, how to speculate. And now we have these apps like Robinhood and others that are just making it worse by gamifying the whole process. And look, it's fun while markets go up. But the goal is, is that we want to create good, healthy financial habits that last a lifetime and get people to where they want to go. And so a lot of this narrative that we throw out in the media, though, but th- and remember this narrative is, is sponsored by your Wall Street firms that want to sell product, doesn't really apply to what happens in real life. And look, there's some, some very good examples of this. Before I get to that, though, let me just say this. Back in the 60s and 70s, when I was growing up, Mr. Lehman lived down the street from me. He's, he's about five, six houses down the street from our house that we lived in. We lived in a little modest house, and I grew up in a chemical town. Everybody worked for the chemical plant, right? So you had most, most of the town were blue-collar workers, and then, but you did have your executives. And Mr. Lehman down the street— he was one of the vice presidents of, of the chemical company, and he had a stockbroker. And so every day he would shuffle down to the end of his driveway in his slippers, and he'd get his Wall Street Journal and go back in his house and call a stockbroker, whatever he did. But when you had a stockbroker back then, it's like, wow, he must have some money. Because he's got a stockbroker, he's investing, right? Smart guy. I learned a lot from him. He taught me a lot. But back then we invested in stocks the average holding period for stocks back in the 60s and 70s and even early 80s was between six and eight years so you'd buy a stock and you know you'd read it in the wall street journal the next day and it wasn't this moment by moment uptick downtick in the markets and we got to make decisions right now is and and if a company meet or beat their earnings by a penny nobody cared i mean it's inconsequential right how's the company doing what's their forecast what are they looking like now it's like you know, we missed by a penny, and we have to sell $5 billion worth of market cap off of it. All right? Knee-jerk reaction. And we've done this to the entire market over the last 30 years. It's is really kind of gamified the whole market. Another mix, mistake we made was going from trading in eighths of a point to decimalization of the markets. So we're now trading on pennies. Free trading is not good. Free trading is not healthy. For individuals you should pay a commission and the reason you should pay a commission is to slow down your process when you have to pay for something you will think it through before you do it free trading removes that barrier of entry so now we just trade willy nilly and we don't really think about what we're doing because it doesn't cost us anything so we're developing more and more bad habits as we go along and Back as I was saying, back in the sixties and seventies, there there was only a handful of mutual funds. I mean, just a couple. And when we got into the eighties, and and more and more people started investing in the markets, and it was becoming more commonplace. Fidelity and other companies said, "Hey, you know, here's a you know, I, I can just almost see the boardroom meeting. <laughs> There's some young analyst in the back going." I got this idea. We've got all these people that we have as clients, right? We've got $100 million worth of clients, whatever, billion dollars worth of clients, whatever. What if we just told them to invest in this mutual fund and then add money every month and we charge them 2% for them to hold? And we tell them, never sell it. Just keep, your, just keep adding money to it. We just charge them 2% annually. We'll just annuitize our whole business. So all this stock trading commission stuff we do where stockbrokers are, are basically going out and selling stocks all day, we'll get rid of all that. We'll just charge people a fee and we'll annuitize. Them. It was genius, right? Wall Street went to making billions of dollars in revenue by hawking this idea that you should just buy a mutual fund holding dollar cost average into it. Right? It's a great marketing idea. Great marketing idea. But that's also where we lost our way in terms of managing money and understanding financial knowledge. And, again, we don't teach this stuff. You know, used to, when I was, when I was in school, in the way, way back years, when we had stone tablets and stuff, <clears throat> when Brent was in school, they had to, like, skin animals to draw on. I mean, it was really bad. Um, Charred wood. <laughs> but— you know, at least, you know, we had a home economics class back then, right? And yeah, you learned to, to bake, but they did teach you how to balance a checkbook and some other stuff, right? You had some basic kind of knowledge about running a house, but we don't have a class like that anymore. We don't have a class that says, this is how you manage a, a checkbook. This is how you, you know, budget. This is how you don't, you know, don't use credit card debt. This is what credit cards are and they're evil and you should leave them alone. We don't teach any of that. And so we have kids going out, they're running up massive amounts of student loan debt because they don't know any better. They don't realize the consequence of debt over time. So we don't teach these things. And then we fill their head with all these ideas. Is, is, and there's a, the reason I'm bringing this up is there's an article, and this kind of goes to an article on our website this morning about Dow 40,000, a huge disappointment. But also there's an article, what to do at every age to make sure you're on track to retire. This seems like great advice, right? In your 20s, save as much money as you can. In your 30s, save some more. In your 50s, go over the details, right? In your 60s, reassess. And by the, by the time you get in your 60s, you should have 10 times your income saved and you should be just fine. So if you make $100,000 a year, you should have a million dollars in the bank and you're going to be fine. Problem is... A million dollars in the bank isn't going to generate $100,000 a year for you to live on. Not anymore. A million dollars in the bank will generate about $14,000 a year right now. That's the problem. So if you want to retire on $100,000 worth of income these days, you're going to need $5 million in the bank, $6 million in the bank. What's the number? And this is where... Understanding financials, really building a financial plan, understanding what risk does. And, and, the big, and here's the biggest problem with this. I'm, I'm writing a report on this in the next couple of weeks because we've had the largest bull market in history ever in the last 12 years. And 80% of Americans have no money. How is that even possible? The average. There was a, a recent article out last a week or two ago talking about Fidelity announced that they had more 401k millionaires than ever on record. Right? People are just booming with wealth in 401k plans inside of Fidelity, and they they said we have 429,000 401k millionaires. That sounds fantastic. You know what percentage that is? of the total number of accounts that they manage in 401k retirement plans? A little over 1%. You know what the wealth gap is in America between the top 1% and the bottom 99? (laughs) There you go. If you have $2 million in the bank, you're in the top 3% of wealth owners in the country, right? The average 401k uh, balance, retirement plan balance, is about sixty-five thousand dollars a year. You know what it costs to raise to to just support a family of four in the U.S. right now? About sixty-five thousand dollars. You know what the average income in America is right now? About sixty-four thousand dollars. You got the problem here. If I if the vast majority of people retire today, they have basically one year's worth of income saved up. Now. How far is that gonna take them in retirement? And this is the problem with Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, all these type of plans is because the vast majority of Americans, when they retire, they're gonna be dependent almost entirely on the Social Security welfare, which is already un, you know threatening bankruptcy by 2026 now, and part-time jobs and retirement. And why did this occur? Because we give people really, really bad financial advice constantly and then where does it come from financial media be right back after the break be careful of what you're told by the media markets don't work the way that they're purported and again look i mean as investors we don't you know being average really isn't the whole point of investing anyway and writing markets up and down over time is fine. You can certainly do that with a buy and hold strategy and dollar cost average, and you'll be okay, right? You'll be okay. You won't reach your financial goals. and that's really that's the whole point of the conversation. And this is why you know focusing on absolute returns is much more important than focusing on relative returns, just trying to track the markets. And, the, and where we get where we get off on all this is that, you know, we look at the markets, markets up 20% this year. And you look at your portfolio and you're up 10. And you're like, well, I'm, I'm really underperforming. I need to play catch up. But what are you competing with? You're completing, You're competing with an arbitrary random benchmark index that has nothing to do with you. It has no life expectancy. It has no expenses. It has no withdrawal requirements. It's got nothing that you do. It has no relevance to you whatsoever. Benchmarking is the worst thing you can do on your portfolio. But see, as humans... We have this need to compete, especially men. We're the worst. Women are better. Women actually make much better investors than men. So if you really want to do well with investing, let your wife do it. You think I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not. Women are very good because they're intuitive and they don't compete. Men, we have this need to beat some, something. We got to beat something. We got to be out there and we got to kill it. And we got to make it better and we got to make it stronger, faster, whatever it is, right? Six million dollar man. See, good example. Just let Lee Majors, I know we got to rebuild the guy. (laughs) Everybody's going, Lee Majors, who's that? (laughs) Point is, is that we have this need to compete. So we pick these random things and it requires to take on way more risk than we should. Trying to beat an a S&P 500 index is fine in theory, except you've got to have 100% equity risk in your portfolio. That may or may not work out so well for you. And things tend to work out okay for a while because you have bull markets more often than you have bear markets. But when the bear market comes, it's really bad. And if it comes at the wrong time, it's really bad for you. And this is what's called sequence of returns. And something that markets, you know, the media never talks about sequence of return risk. And this is something you really need to understand in managing your own money. Sequence of returns is where your returns come from and when. So if you're five years into, you know, your retirement savings, right? You're, you've got 20, you're five years, you've been investing for the last five years, and you've got 25 years left, and you have a major bear market next year. That's not terrible. It's going to wipe out a big chunk of everything you've done, and now you've only got 24 years left to your retirement, so you're going to kind of restart, but you've got a shorter time frame now. This is the problem. People don't tell you about drawdowns. You lose time. You can't recoup that. But if you have a bear market in your five years from retirement, a very different thing. So the sequence of return risk, and this is something that Danny and Richard do a great job on in doing uh, financial planning for clients, is using the sequence of return risk to calculate different scenarios where if you have a big loss, how does it impact your financial income? Factoring these in make a huge difference to your ultimate to your ultimate outcomes. And again, this is where absolute returns. The goal is is that yeah, you know, I may underperform this year for the markets, I might underperform next year. But if I can avoid the drawdowns and create stability during drawdown periods, then I don't have to spend a lot of time getting back to even and that's the and and not having to spend time getting back to even increases my rate of return over time. And this is why simple strategy, and again, this isn't complicated, right? I mean, you know, we have a lot of strategies that we use here in our shop, but you can use something as simple as, you know, a 200-day moving average. You know, if, you, if the market breaks below the 200-day moving average, you're going to reduce your stock exposure, Problem now is, is we're so deviated from that 200-day moving average, you've got to lose 10% of your money just before you get triggered out. But a few times, you're going to violate that 200-day moving average, and markets going to go right back up. So you may have to sell and buy within a week of each other. That happens sometimes. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Because one time, you're going to break the 200-day moving average, and the market's going to keep going down. And you'll avoid all that downturn, down drag. And then when the market recovers, gets back above the turn day moving average, put your money back to work. Yeah, you missed some of the recovery from the bottom. You didn't buy the bottom. But you've assured yourself that you've avoided that decline. And now you're back into a more positive trend of the markets. And, yeah, sometimes it works great, sometimes not so much. But that's any strategy, right? Race car drivers don't win every race. They have the same car. Every car in Formula One are built exactly the same, to the same specifications. It comes down to the driver, not the car. And that's the whole point of Formula One racing, is to see who the better driver is. So that's why the cars are all built identical. Sure, there's some minor tweaks and adjustments they do to give them a little bit of an edge, but that's technical analysis in the stock market, right? And the goal is, is that if you can navigate and drive just a little bit better, you'll win the race. But you don't win every time. And this is where we go wrong with our investing. This is this is the problem with how we teach kids to invest. It's okay to be wrong. doesn't make you a loser. doesn't make you um, a drag. I mean, it's it, nothing. It's just this particular strategy didn't work this one particular time. Is it a good strategy? Yeah, historically over time. Using the 200-day moving average, I'm just using that as an example, right, just as an example, has a long history of working out well. Are there times it doesn't work? Absolutely, and that's okay. Doesn't mean you abandon the strategy. Doesn't mean you throw up your hands and say it doesn't work. You just got to keep with it, and over time, you're going to win. But that's the whole point of having any strategy. Whatever your discipline or strategy is, it doesn't matter, but you've got to adhere to it. But the goal of any strategy is not to be average. Investing is not, the goal of investing is not to be average, right? That's buy and hold, ride the markets up and down. And look, simple math tells you the problem with buy and hold right up front. If I make 10% and I lose 10% and I get back to 10%, I'm even. I didn't make any money. Three years, you know, I made money the first year. I made up 10%. I lost it all. And then I got back to even. The problem is, is every year I need that 8% or 6% or whatever that number is to get to retirement. That number keeps growing. So now not only when I get my 10% back, I've got to get back to 6% for the last two years that I didn't make it. Whatever. On top of it. So the problem is, is, loss is compound. And they undermine... The growth rate of your money again this goes back to the article that's out on the website today and it's simply just a, a, a simple calculation the dow grows at five percent a year we should be at 600 plus thousand on the dow not forty thousand. that's the difference between compounding and actual that's the difference between average rates of return and actual Actual rates of return matter, and they matter a lot. And this is where we go back to this whole important point about financial planning, pay attention to the risk, managing risk, doing these type of things. I know it sounds boring, right? And it's hard. Investing isn't easy. It's it's not meant to be easy. You know, people go to people. And my son's getting ready to go to college, and my daughter. So my daughter got accepted test Texas. She's, she's so excited. She's already put stickers all over her car. She doesn't go to Texas Tech for a year and a half, all right? But she's already got stickers all over her car. It's good for her. It's awesome. My son, applying for college. That's great, right? So they're going to go to college, and they're going to get degrees in you know, their specified fields, whatever it is. And people do this all the time. We go to school to be doctors, lawyers, engineers, and whatever. But we all jump into the stock market thinking that we can manage money. And this is the most complicated game on the planet because it's economics, it's politics, it's geopolitics, it's finance, it's, it's everything, it's weather, disasters. I mean, you have all these inputs that you've got to factor in into the stock market every single day about what's going on. It's an incredibly complex game, and people think they can take their money and do this. You know, part time. I can spend five, 10 minutes a day and make money. And yeah, during bull markets, you certainly seem to can. And that's the great thing about a bull market. Bull market is very forgiving of investment mistakes. Bear markets reveal them very quickly. And this is what happens repeatedly over time. But this is why we go back to look at statistics. Why is it? that 80% of Americans have less than one year salary saved up. After the biggest bull market from 1990 to 2000, you had one of the biggest bull markets in history. You had another big bull market from 2003 to 2008, and you've had the biggest bull market in history from 2012 to 2021, and yet you still have 80% of Americans with less than one year salary in the bank. What is the problem? People have no money to invest because they're just trying to make ends meet. They have poor financial advice, so they don't invest properly, and they don't manage risk. And those are the three catalysts that lead up to the problem repeatedly, no matter who it is or what survey is put out there. Manage risk. It's the most important thing you have to do. Go to the website today. Our article is out. Dow 40,000. A huge disappointment. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Send Send your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do for you, of course. As always always happy to help you. We have our upcoming uh, webinars as well, all on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. That's realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. Money, money, money. Must be funny. In a Money, money, money. Always Sunday. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich word.